Hi, Pastor Chad Tucker here from Doxa Church in Burlington, North Carolina. To learn more about our new ministry and to find out about how you can partner with us, visit us online at doxaburlington.com. That's D-O-X-A burlington.com. We hope you enjoy the message. Revelation chapter 1. Uh, we are nearing the end of the first chapter of our study of the book of Revelation. And as we transition to chapter 2, uh, we've seen these letters to the seven churches. We're going to take our time and walk through those letters. Those are very, very important uh, letters. But I thought today what we would do is kind of uh, just be reminded of several truths that we see here in Scripture and bring some uh, significance or some meaning to some of the symbolism that we see, particularly as it relates to Christ and His church uh, today. Uh, I'm so thankful that even in our study of the first chapter, uh, I believe Scripture has already been fulfilled, which says, Blessed are those who read uh, the words of this prophecy and heed them uh, as well. And we've also certainly have been reminded that the time is near. So here in Revelation chapter 1, John, of course, is on the Isle of Patmos. He's there because of the word of Christ and the testimony uh, of Christ. And what we see is, is, is he's there and he receives a command to write what you see, write what you see. Uh, you will perhaps remember that we looked in verse, um, in verse 19, where John kind of receives the threefold commission of what his task is. And the threefold things that he is to write about, we see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, therefore write what you have seen, and that's the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and all the things that he witnessed there. And we're going to talk about some of those things today again. We mentioned those last week. And the second thing he says, um, therefore write what you have seen, the things that are, or what is, um, and what will take place after this. We've already seen in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, that John says, after these things uh, I saw. So um, here in Revelation chapter 1, John, uh, for the first time, uh, has the opportunity to look upon the Lord Jesus. Uh, as we looked at last week, he doesn't see Jesus just in his resurrected form as Mary Magdalene and as the disciples did um, there. John sees Jesus in his uh, glorified body, uh, the glorious resurrected Lord. And he catches a glimpse of the Lord in all of his glory. And his response is certainly one of, uh, of worship and adoration. And the Bible says that he falls down at his feet as dead. We're going to pick up here in verse, um, in, in verse I think for the, for the sake of uh, understanding, we'll pick up in verse 12 and read through the end of the chapter. And though we've dealt with these verses a little bit last week, we'll pull some things, uh, some different things today and apply them to the local church uh, today. So Revelation 1.12, listen, if you would, to the Word of God. John says, And then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. 
Now he gives us in verse 20, he, he, we, he doesn't leave us to guess the symbolism and the imagery that's there. He tells us exactly what it is. It's as if he doesn't want us to miss it. Oftentimes when we approach scripture, we'll take scripture out of context, apply it out of context, make it say something totally different than what it says and carry on a different meaning. We'll take imagery and apply it. And we don't need to do any of those things. Our, our, the best that we can do is to understand the text in context and where the Bible interprets itself. That is going to be the clearest and, um, uh, way to understand what it says. So notice what he says in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, As we look at this particular passage of Scripture today, I think it's important that you realize that it's the Lord Jesus that just defined for us the imagery that John saw. John's not deciding what the stars mean. John's not deciding what he thinks the lampstands are. However, if the Holy Spirit of God would have led John to give us that information, because it's the Holy Spirit of God, it would have been inspired. It would have been uh, exactly what God would have wanted, what God would have said, and it would have been exactly right. But let's look at this and let's be clear. The things that John sees and the things that he has questions about, the stars and the lampstand, the Lord Jesus himself gives the answer to what those things are. Let's let's take a look at this today, and I think this is very important, and particularly as it relates to the Lord's table that we're going to be doing today. I want you to, I guess the, the main idea, the main thing that I want us to, to take away from this message today, to be reminded of, some perhaps to learn for the first time, is that the Lord Jesus Christ, as head of His church, is actively present, actively involved, and intimately knows the things that are taking place within not just the universal church, but the local church as well. I think that's important. I think sometimes we have this idea that God is in the heavens and we're going to worship Him until He returns, but we can do whatever it is that we want to do, however we want to do it within the church, as long as our intentions are good. No, no, this is not our church. This is God's church. Christ is the head of the church. Beloved, He is in the midst of His church couple things. We've already looked at a lot of the descriptions of Christ. And if you weren't able to be with us last week, the message is available online. So we're not going to unpack all of those things again. But there are a couple of things that I want to uh, point out just as we look in this particular passage today. And that is in uh, verse 14, we mentioned last week that his eyes were like a fiery flame. A fiery flame. Uh, there are other passages of Scripture that certainly indicate that God is intimately aware of the things that take place within the local church. And if you will remember that even in the church at Corinth, it says that 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 all of our works and, and even our motives and means that we come and we present to Christ is the fiery eyes of Christ that will burn up the wood, hay, and stubble and leave the precious uh, stones that we will present to the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to be reminded of His fiery eyes that pierce into the deep, dark crevices, not only of our lives individually, but certainly in our lives corporately within the local church. I'd also uh, remind you, uh, if you would, um, that... Uh, Verse 16, he had seven stars in his right hand. We'll talk about those. But I want you to see this. He has a sharp, double-edged sword that comes from his mouth. So laser fire, purging fire from his eyes. 
double-edged sword, the Word of God coming from His mouth. Uh, the Bible says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And even as we have seen in the past, that means that the Word of God basically it cuts us open and lays us bare. It's like it's like applying a, a sharp razor to flesh, and as you rake it just across, just just slide it across. Have you ever been cut with a, a razor blade, or even a paper cut can do a lot of work, right? But it just with a razor blade, it just kind of lays it flesh open and bare. Beloved, that's what the Word of God does. When we take God at His Word and we open and we look for the voice of God in His Word, we, we hear the voice of God, we study the promises of God, we look in for, for where God is at work, He convicts us of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. He uh, shows us where our priorities and our motives are off. Uh, he right gives us His promises. He does all of these things. The Word of God is where we hear the voice of God that instructs the people of God. So having full laser-like vision and being equipped with a double-edged sword could cut either side, either direction, the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ is presented in all of His glory. Face like the sun at full strength. Not even able to look at it, but for a very short season without doing damage to the eyes. So where is He? Certainly the Bible says that the Lord has ascended into heaven and from thence He will come again to judge the living and the dead. But I want you to see, and I want you to see the location that we see here in this text. Because the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the imagery is that he's walking in the midst of these lampstands. My kids will tell you that I'm a pacer. You all know what that means? I find it hard to sit still, particularly when I'm on the phone and things like that. I'm right walking back and forth, back and forth. Eli is the same way. Uh, back and forth, back and forth, but gather, you know, inside, outside, around, and all of these things. Oftentimes, the way we pace, it looks worrisome. I don't want to give the idea that the Lord is worrisome with what takes place. But what I do want you to see is in the imagery that John presents, actually the Lord Jesus himself presents it in the book of Revelation, is that Jesus is walking in the midst of these lampstands. He's walking in the midst of these lampstands. If you think about that initially, you're like, that might be a little strange. Maybe he has a lampstand, whatever, but no, because it's been defined for us. It's interesting when you think about these lampstands, what are these lampstands? Well, the Bible tells us clearly, right? Look at what it says at the end of verse 20. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So when you think about churches being lampstands, there are a couple things that perhaps would, would come to mind, right? Jesus is the light of the world, but what did he tell us? You are the light of the world. So certainly the, the lampstand would have its lamp in there and would give light off. And, and so perhaps the, the idea of the church being a lampstand is, is a place that reflects the glory and of God and, and therefore reflects that into the, the darkness of the world. I think that's potentially a good thing. The idea of the lampstand is the place perhaps where the Word of God uh, gives direction and insight and guidance and things like that. Because we know the Bible says that the, the Word of God, Thy Word is a light unto my path and a lamp unto my feet. A lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So it's certainly the place that people can come for guidance and, and things along those lines. Regardless of what the imagery is, here is Jesus walking in the midst of these lampstands. And did you notice 
Did you notice what those lampstands were made out of? They are golden lampstands. If you want, if you ever, if you ever want to know what does God think about the church itself, just know that whenever He chose to put, when the Lord Jesus Himself chose to give the imagery in the Book of Revelation for the church, He chose to use lampstands and not just any lampstand, golden lampstands, most valuable, precious metal. That there is. So what do you think that says about what God thinks about the church? Well, I'll tell you what it says he thinks about the church. He says it's most valuable and most important to him. Now, now how can I say that? It's most valuable because it's represented by gold, right? It's most important because of the price that he was willing to pay for it. Right? What makes something valuable is not just the intricate value of the, the intrinsic value of the item itself, but it's what someone is willing to pay for it. So what was God willing to pay for the golden lampstands, i.e. the church? He was willing to purchase it with His Son, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what's the picture? The picture is, is here's the Lord, and He's walking in the midst of these lampstands. He's not looking at it from a distance. He's not pointing at it. But where is He? He is in the midst of these golden lampstands that He Himself purchased with His own blood that belongs to Him and He cares for His church. Don't ever forget that. We do not have the freedom to do church any way we want to do church. It doesn't belong to us. We don't have the freedom to decide what is it that we're going to offer up to God as worship. As long as our intentions are good, Pastor, we can do anything. No, no. God is not obligated to honor our good intentions and what we offer up. God will receive that which He has said that He would receive. Beloved, to offer anything else is to offer up strange fire to God to invite the the judgment of God. Uh, the fact that the Lord is walking in the midst of these lampstands, I think is a wonderful picture, not only of His intimate knowledge with the church, but the fact that He's always reforming, always revitalizing, always at work to make the church, beloved, what the church ought to be. We will never arrive. We will always have a tendency to stray to the left or to the right. We'll always have a tendency, if we're not careful, to do things that are not pleasing to the Lord. Our church will drift one way or the other. And we need God Himself, the Lord Jesus, right, fiery eyes, double-edged sword, to, right, to lead God, correct, Direct, revitalize, refresh, renew. We need Him constantly in the midst of our church. Not everything that says church on the sign is a church. And today, because I left the sign at home, we don't even have a sign that says church. But beloved, I would say we are the church. We are believers who have gathered together. When it comes to this church, though, I want you to see this. Not only do you walk in the midst of these lampstands, but but take a look at these stars. These stars. Um, these stars. Uh, these are the you know the, the the picture is the constellation stars, not stars like celebrities. Okay, and I think that's important. 
Um, the idea is, is this, here's Christ. He's in the midst of these lampstands. And, and notice what it says. Notice what it says. Verse 16, he had seven stars in his right hand. Those seven stars, we don't have to guess what they are. And yet we've got to bring some clarity to it. Look at what it says. Go down to verse, go down to verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, got to pause there. The seven stars are the seven angels. That would raise a couple questions, wouldn't it? For example, how many lampstands are there? Seven. How many churches? Obviously seven. How many stars? Seven. And these stars uh, translated in most translations as angels. The word original angel in, in the original language is angelos. So some perhaps would say that for every local church that's there, that God assigns an angel to that church. Certainly the word angelos is used as angel throughout the book of Revelation. It's translated that way more times than than not. Hebrews says, for example, we know the Bible affirms the presence of angels. In fact, Hebrews says that sometimes we entertain angels unaware. Unaware. It could be that even one of you are an angel. No, no. I think all of you are angels, but not in that sense. So some would say that, that, that for every local church, there perhaps is an angel and has been assigned to that church and, and that angel is the one who receives the, the message from God and, and delivers that message to the church. The problem is, is we've never had an angel and I've been pastoring for nearly 20 years now. We've never ever had an angel that showed up and said, ah, I've got a message from the Lord. If you would let me read this message from the Lord. As I've studied and as I've you know, studied commentaries and, and other things along there, I've concluded, and I think it's I think it's biblical to say, this word angelos, it does mean angel, but it also means messenger. It means messenger. And and what I believe, and, and you're free to study this and research and come to your own conclusions. But what I believe as well as many scholars that I study behind believe, is that this word in this context should be the messenger, that God has a messenger of that church. And if you and I think about it, who is the the messenger? Who is the voice of God in the midst of the church? Who is the one that reads, studies, proclaims the message of God? It would be the pastor, the elder. I, I think I think that's that's the right interpretation. The reason I think it's the right interpretation is because not only does it make sense that that's the way it is, I think that's the practice. We never see an angel crossing over except for you know, a couple of times in terms of every local church. There's not a local church out there that's ever had an angel come. I think it's the messenger. And what is the message that the messenger gives? It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God. So I'm going to go with that. Now, a couple of things about that. Number one is you need to believe that your pastor is an angel. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, 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 no. All right. Secondly, I'm a star. No, I'm kidding. <clears throat> the stars here are constellation. Just side note, I know we have movie stars and we have stars and all these famous people. Uh, the the pastor's not to be a celebrity. The pastor's not to be the star. All of us, everyone here in this place today, have been, if you're saved, you've been called by God, you've been uniquely gifted with either according to 1 Peter chapter 4, the gift of speaking or the gift of service. And what we're doing right now is I'm exercising the gift that God has given me and the calling that God has given me. But all of us have gifts, right, for the edifying of the body of Christ. 
For some, it's the gift of hospitality. For others, it's the gift of, of serving in another area, another capacity, or, or whatever that it is. So, so if it is true, and I believe that it is, that, that these angels um, are the messengers to the local church, then listen, I find it humbling, and I find it um, encouraging that God holds the pastors of His church in His right hand. Why? Because that means that God is directing, ordaining, leading, guiding. It is His church. And therefore, folks, as the pastor, I don't have the freedom to come and pe- preach people's preferences. I don't have the freedom to come and, and do this and do that. No, I have the calling of God to say, what thus says the Lord. And nothing else. So here's the Lord. And He's in the midst. And there's seven of them. And to be clear, these are all local churches. They're local churches. There are two churches you need to know about. There is the universal church. Universal Church. The Universal Church is a church made up of born-again believers from every nation, tribe, and tongue. It's not about denomination. It's not about those things. But every person who has repented of their sins, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, confessed them that are part of the, the true church, part of the true church, they are the Universal Church. But when believers who are part of the Universal Church gather together locally, that forms what's called the local assembly or the local church. Seven of them are listed here. Seven of them are, are listed here. That's certainly not all of them. Uh, why seven? I think is a good question that Sherry asked. And, 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 and there are a lot of, uh, practical reasons why he chose these seven churches. They were within the vicinity of where John is along the mail route. Seven in the Bible represents the number of completion. I don't think he just limited to these seven churches. I think these seven churches are representative churches. And I think that we're going to see ourselves in all seven churches rather than identifying with one church versus the other. But these aren't arbitrary churches. These aren't churches that are just a figment of the Lord's mind. These are not seven examples of churches. These are actually seven local churches in these seven cities. So these seven churches are real local churches that existed during John's time in Asia Minor near the island of Patmos where John was in exile. There's also a clear sense that they represent Christ's intimate knowledge of and concern for each local church around the world throughout every era of church history. That the churches are depicted as golden lampstands show their immense worth coupled with their roles as light shining in a dark place. Christ walking in the midst of these seven golden lampstands illustrates His active concern for the churches as well as His vigilant and dynamic ministry among them. The seven angels in Christ's right hand illustrate His sovereign power over the pastors of these churches. How awesome then! To see the resurrected Christ moving actively through these seven lampstands, tending to them, dealing with their pastors, speaking words of comfort or rebuke to them. It is this vision of the church that tells us that God is always and therefore we should always be about reforming the church bringing it into line with what God's word says it is and we study these letters to seven churches to some Christ speak words of commendation for their tireless labor their doctrinal accuracy faithfulness in persecution discernment of error and hatred of compromise 
God recognizes and knows all of those things and comments on those things. To others, Christ speaks words of rebuke for they have forsaken their first love for doctrinal compromise, toleration of sinning members, worldliness, spiritual deadness, self-confidence in wealth, and lukewarmness. But to all, Christ gives words of exhortation to continue in courageous progress in the gospel, to look to the sweet eternal rewards, and to hear the words God speaks to the churches by His Spirit. Careful study of these letters to seven churches provides careful and powerful insight into Christ's zeal for the ongoing revitalization of the church in every age. So Revelation 1 through 3 clearly indicates the slide of local churches from health towards death. Clearly from health towards death. It has been ongoing for 20 centuries now. But Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against that. Beloved, that is not a promise that he's going to keep every lampstand of every local church in place. Indeed, he has and will not. The church at Ephesus had forsaken its first love and the Lord threatened to remove its lampstand if they refused to repent. Revelation chapter 2, 4 and 5. The removal of the lampstand is Christ's judgment on any church that through sin slides from life to death. Christ sovereignly removes them from the community and they are gone. He has done this consistently throughout church history. Indeed, history indicates that by the third century, the church at Ephesus had possibly been removed. In any case, it was certainly gone by the time Islam had come to dominate that region of the world in the seventh century. The church at Ephesus where Paul wrote the beloved book of Ephesians. False teachers had infiltrated the church of Pergamum and Christ threatened to come and wage war against them with the sword of his mouth. Revelation 2, 14 and 16. The church at Thyatira was guilty of tolerating sexual immorality and Christ threatened to throw any who sinned in this way on a sick bed resulting in death. Revelation 2, verses 20 to 23. The church at Sardis was clearly in need of revitalization and Christ says, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And He warned them, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to Die. Revelation chapter 3, 1 and 2. Perhaps no church of the seven so clearly fits the pattern of revitalization as that one. The church at Laodicea was lukewarm and Christ threatened to spew them out of his mouth. Local churches have stood in need of revitalization from the beginning of church history. And it continues until now. So when it comes to the local church, I think it's important to be reminded, right, that, that we are always in need of reform. The words are planned. In need of reform. In need of revitalizing. And we'll never move beyond the need for reviving, reforming, and revitalization. But I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged because Christ is in the midst of His lampstands and He holds those churches in high regard provides pastors, ordains, directs, guides, speaks into those churches and calls, calls all of us, calls all of us to examine ourselves 
and to make sure, number one, that we are in faith. And then secondly, to examine our church in light of God's Word and see the areas where we as a church need to reform and be revitalized for His glory and participate and join in with God in that which He's doing in our midst. So, beloved, we're going to study these letters to the seven churches and we're going to see some things and it's going to be really easy on some occasions to cluck our tongues and wag our finger. How in the world could those people do that? And there's going to be times that we're going to say, oh my, I can't believe they did that. And there's going to be going to say, oh me, look where I'm at. And through it all, Christ is going to do a work in us and through us and among us. And together we'll give God the glory and we'll say, oh my, oh me, and amen. Amen. So we come to the place in our service where we are going to partake of the Lord's table. As we think about this, we want to be reminded of what the Lord's table is all about. The reason we have two ordinances in the church is because we as Baptists believe that God gave two commands, two ordinances to the church. And both of them are very vital and those both of them are very critical. And both are to be done in the way that God, who holds the walks among the lampstands and holds the stars in hand, says that it's to be done. We, we can't vary from that. We can't set we can't set aside from the way that God has said to do it. Even in the practice of the Lord's table. And so I think it's important as we come to the Lord's table that we be reminded of what these ordinances are. When a person first understands that they have no ability to save themselves, that their sin has separated them from God, and they recognize that Christ came to live the perfect sinless life, that He died, and even though this is under attack in our day and age, even among some supposedly conservative evangelicals, Christ died in our place, in our stead. That's called substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement is under attack in the church today. Substitutionary atonement that says that Christ died in our place, in our stead, that God poured out His wrath and satisfied His wrath on Christ so that it wouldn't have to come towards us is an archaic idea. They're saying that it goes back to the, the time of the volcanoes and when the volcanoes were roaring and erupting, they would, they would take an, an innocent person and they would cast them into the volcano to appease the wrath of the gods who were erupting the volcano. And they are equating substitutionary atonement with those things that how could God pour out his wrath on his son in order to, and how could we expect him to do that in order to appease God, so His wrath is not on us. But beloved, the truth of the matter is, is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The truth of the matter is, is our sin separates us from God. The truth of the matter is, is we are not at peace with God. We are at odds with God, at enmity of God, with God in that condition. And if we die in that condition, we will be eternally separated from God in hell. It's not that God doesn't like you. It's that you have sinned against a holy God. And you have no ability to save yourself. But God sent His Son Jesus to come to walk this earth, to live the life that we could not live, to die in our death, the cruel death of the cross that you and I deserve to die because of our sin. And in the midst of His dying physically, the Father comes and pours out His wrath on His Son. And Christ partakes in and satisfies the wrath of God for the sin of all those who will one day come to faith in Christ. 
And in so doing, when you recognize that you don't have any ability to save yourself, you throw yourself at the foot of the cross. You repent of your sin. You say, God, I am sorry. God, forgive me. God, save me. Because there is no Savior apart from the Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. And by faith, you receive the gift of salvation. By faith... A transaction takes place. Your sin debt is transferred to God. And God's sat, Christ's satisfaction and righteousness is transferred to you. And before God, through the blood of work of Jesus Christ, you stand holy, blameless, without spot and without blemish. And beloved, that doesn't happen that doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen by happenstance. It is a legal transaction. You can talk about it all you want to, but until that transaction takes place, it is not a done deal. You have to take your sin, and they have to be transferred to Christ's work on the cross. And the wrath of God has to satisfy those sins, and God gives you the righteousness of Christ. And you say, how do I do that? By faith by believing in our heart and by praying and asking God to do that. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But beloved, if you don't call upon His name, you will not and are not saved. And therefore, it is possible to go to hell as many throughout the centuries have, even from a church chair instead of pew. When a person... When a person receives Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, their public profession of faith is not walk an aisle, shake the pastor's hand, fill out a card, make a declaration. No, the public profession of faith is baptism. Baptism is the place where we stand before witnesses in the water professing our faith in Jesus Christ, that He has already saved us. And when we are placed under the water, we are buried in the likeness of His death and raised to walk in newness of life. Listen, that is our public profession of faith. That is our public profession of faith. It's not that baptism saves you. It doesn't save you. Baptism does not save you whatsoever. Baptism is a picture of that which has already taken place in your life. It is you publicly proclaiming Christ as your Lord and Savior. And therefore, right, we are baptized into the body of Christ at our salvation. Every born-again believer is baptized into the body of Christ. And that's how you become a member of the body of Christ. Your water baptism is the picture of the salvation that's already been done. And it is commanded by God for every believer. The New Testament knows nothing of a born-again believer who has not been baptized. Even the Ethiopian eunuch said simply this, Here's water, what must I do to be saved and uh, to be baptized? And, and they stopped the carriage and right then and there they were baptized. No, water baptism doesn't save you. But it is your public profession of faith that you identify with the finished work of Christ on the cross. And it is commanded by God. It gives us a clear conscience before God. And therefore is necessary for church membership. It is the visible, physical means of identifying with the finished work of Christ on the cross. And therefore, every person who becomes a member of Doxa Church will be baptized by immersion, placed, raised to walk in newness of life. It happens one time. You believe first and then are baptized. If you were if you went under the water and then later you came to faith in Christ, that was not a baptism. That was getting wet. You went down a wet center, came up a wet center. You believe first and then are baptized. <laughs> baptism, you can only have believer's baptism. We don't practice unbelievers' baptism. It's believer's baptism. And so all those who profess faith in Christ are baptized. Those who are baptized are members of the local church. That's the first order ordinance, baptism. The second is the Lord's table. 
the Lord's table is for baptized believers who have already identified with the finished work of Christ on the cross. They've declared that publicly and unashamedly before the world and the church through witnesses. And we are to do this until He comes. Baptism happens one time. The Lord's Supper, it happens over and over and over again. And there's some evidence that would suggest that we should do this and be reminded of this every single time we gather together. That's what the Lord, the early church did. They gathered together for the breaking of bread. Jesus says to do this, to remember his death until he comes again. We are commanded to do this over and over and over again because the bread represents the body which was broken and the cup represents the blood that was shed. And when we partake of his body which was broken for us and we partake of the cup representing his blood that was shed for us, we are remembering his death and His salvation that we have received when He comes. Here at Doxa Church, there are different types of Lord's table that we do. There are some who just don't fence the table at all and let everybody participate. If you're here, you get to participate because that's the thing to do. We, we don't do that here at Doxa. There's some churches that practice closed communion, and closed communion means that you have to be a baptized member of that particular local church in order to participate in the Lord's table. We don't practice that type necessarily either. On occasion we will, because there's church discipline issues and all that go in, and that would be closed to outside. But the normal remembering the Lord's death until He comes is open to every baptized, born-again believer. If you have made a public profession of faith and have been baptized by immersion, you're part of the body of Christ and we welcome you to the table. And if you're not, this is the time to rejoice with those who have. And this is the time to pray and to consider your own journey with God and what your next steps ought to be if you are able to do it. And parents, speaking to Michelle and I, it's an opportunity for us to instruct Ava, who has not made a public profession of faith, in why we do that, but she does not participate in the Lord's table. Why would we do that? Because the Apostle Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians that if we partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, we are eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. And he says, for this reason, many have died. Now, I've been pastor for about 20 years. Never one time have I had a person who snuck in to partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, fall out dead and die in a worship service. But nor would I say that God's not able and capable of doing such. It's a holy time. And there's absolutely nothing to be ashamed of if for whatever reason you're unable to participate. There are times when you're out of fellowship with God, out of fellowship with one another. You, even as a born-again, baptized believer in Christ, and you haven't got those things right and you're angry and upset, you would do well to pass the plate rather than to participate. And yet you can't remain in that condition because we're commanded to partake of the Lord's table. So the Apostle Paul said this, it's not for the church to decide or judge. It's for each, every individual person to examine themselves to see that they meet the Lord's qualifications to obey the command I would remind you it is a command to partake of the Lord's table so in just a moment I'm going to give you a minute to pray and I'm going to come around I'm going to bring the bread first and as I come around listen there is no shame in passing the plate on Nobody's going to judge you. No one is going to have anything to you. That is between you and the Lord. If you want to participate, as I come around, then you'll take the, you'll take the bread 
And you'll just hold on to it and we'll all pray and partake together. If I come around and for whatever reason you haven't been baptized, you aren't a born again, you're out of fellowship for whatever with God and, and, and examining yourself, have decided that this is not the time for you to do that, then, then you simply don't reach. And when you don't reach, then I'll just move on to the next person uh, and go. But I would remind you that we do this with the Lord Jesus in our midst. I would remind you that we are a lampstand and that He's in our place. And let's do this. As unto the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, when we think about the death of Christ and the price that was paid for us for our salvation. And we look at our own selves. None of us are worthy to partake of the Lord's table. It is a humbling thing. It's very easy. It's just bread. It's just a cup. But it's what they represent. It's what they remind us of. In these simple elements, we are reminded of the gospel that saves. In the partaking of the bread, we are reminded of the body of our Lord Jesus that was broken in order that we could be forgiven and redeemed. And in the drinking of the cup, we are reminded that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sin. And though the blood of goats and bulls could never redeem us and satisfy the wrath of God because of our sin, they were a foreshadow of Christ's blood that would be shed on that cross. Father, I pray that as each and every one of us examine our hearts before you, that, Father, you would remind us and that you would show us the next steps that we need to take. Perhaps there is someone lost who needs salvation and that is the next step. Perhaps there's one who's saved that needs to be baptized and that is the next step. Perhaps there's a baptized believer that's out of fellowship with you and they need to repent and get right in order to participate. That is the next step. And perhaps we are saved and baptized and born again and walking in fellowship with you. We still examine our lives to make sure that we have confessed our sins, that we are in right relationship, right fellowship with you, and we partake of the Lord's table in a worthy manner. Father, we ask the Holy Spirit of God to encourage us today, to convict us, and to lead us into what our next steps are in the faith. We do this Lord's table remembering the death of our Lord Jesus until He returns. And we do so as commanded in Scripture. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This through the breaking of the Lord's body that we are reminded of His death. He took bread and broke it and gave it to His disciples. And He said, Take and eat. This is My body which has been broken for you. Father, thank You for the body of Jesus that was broken on our behalf nor we could be brought in. We are reminded today of the price that was paid for our salvation and we give you glory for it all, recognizing that we can't save ourselves. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Take it in church. Jesus says, this is my blood which has been poured out for you. Take and drink. Remember his death until he comes. Lord Jesus, thank you for your blood that was shed. We are so thankful that you bore our stripes, you bore our wrath, that you shed your blood in order we could be born again. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Take.